Thank you. Please be seated and uh, turn your Bibles to the last chapter of First John, First John chapter five, as we wind up there. First John and chapter five. As you do so, I do bring you greetings from brethren in uh, the Netherlands, and uh, I'm tempted to say that I was quite challenged by them especially uh, the way they came to church on bicycles. You know, I thought to myself, this would solve all our nightmares outside there. Uh, because, you know, to them, cycling is just part of their lives. I, I hardly came across a fat Dutch despite their good economy. You see, us, it's poverty that keeps us slim. But, you know, it was, it was really interesting because the meeting sometimes would finish around 22 hours and they would all come out and get into their, onto their bicycles and, you know, get back to their homes. Uh, there was so much space in the car park. Uh, there were no headaches. Uh, so let, let's pray about it. I'm not suggesting anything. <laughs> okay, I'm not, I'm not saying anything. I'm just sort of reporting back what I saw. Okay. But they do send you their love and their greetings. Let's read beginning with verse 13 of this last chapter of First uh, John. First John chapter 5 and beginning with verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And our text for this morning. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
Well, brethren, as you can see, we are nearing the end of our series uh, of messages in um, John's first epistle. We have seen that the bulk of these messages that make up this entire book deal with the subject of assurance of salvation. It's very clear from the 13th verse that we read earlier on. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We've seen again and again how John is moving between two rails to show what the basis or arguments for assurance of salvation ought to be. One of those rails has been the right knowledge of the way of salvation. In other words, we ought to be able to speak very clearly that we believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, as is actually taught in the scriptures. He is God, he is man, he is absolutely righteous, and yet he takes upon himself our guilt and suffers the punishment for it. He fully pays, completely dispenses with the debt that we owe God. That right belief must be there. If you have a wrong understanding of God's way of salvation, you are not a Christian. Over and over and over again, John makes that clear. But he equally makes clear the fact that we ought to live a morally transformed life. That that also ought to be evident in us. So God doesn't just give us a right understanding. He removes from us the heart of stone, puts within us a heart of flesh, fills us with his own Holy Spirit, and consequently gives us a hatred for sin that was not there before and a real love for righteousness that also wasn't there before. But we are able to live a life that previously was absolutely impossible. Again, the point he makes over and over again in this epistle amounts to this, that it doesn't matter what you think about yourself. If your life has not been transformed morally, you are not a Christian. On the other hand, this book is very positive. It is saying that if you have that correct understanding and you also have this correct living, it's not your own doing. Jesus has saved you. And he's saying, I want you to know that. And as we come to the end of this epistle, I'm Sure, you have noticed that over and over again, he's talking about this. We know, we know, we know. And the we know that we are dealing with now is our second last one in verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. A fortnight ago, we saw the previous we know which was dealing with our perseverance. When he said in verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, 
and the evil one does not touch him. That's the we know we looked at. That if God has saved us, he will keep us. We will safely arrive in heaven. He will enable us to live that impossible life to the very end. The, we know that we are dealing with this morning is really a follow-up on that. In fact, it's really a parallel, as we shall soon see, with the previous verse. But this time, the emphasis is on our unique position in Christ, or to put it a little differently, our sense of unique privilege as the people of God. We know that we, and allow me to add because it will soon be very clear, and we only are from God. And that's why the title of my message is Christians alone have divine life. We are not simply one of many religions in the world. Many ways to go up the mountain and still find God. There is only one true religion. There is only one true faith. There is only one genuine people of God. Those who have received divine life from him. And it is those who are Christians. That's what it deals with there. And then makes it very clear that everybody else lies in the power of the evil one. Let's quickly look at this one sentence and appreciate our unique privilege and the misery of the rest of the world. Brethren, in our assurance of salvation, we ought to be conscious of how privileged we are. That we alone are the children of God. I mean, think of the millions and millions of people on the planet. Estimated around six billion or so. Think of the variety of religions that cover the globe. We ought to be conscious that we could easily be one of those. Completely led astray and still thinking that perhaps we are in the right. And then the Lord in his mercy and in his grace has brought the truth specifically to us, wherever we may have been as individuals, and saved us from being lost in sin. Hence the phrase there by John, that we are from God. Or to be more precise, the actual phrasing there is that we are out of God. In other words, we belong to him, but more than that, our life has come out of God himself. And that's why I'm calling it us being the only ones with divine life. In many ways, all he's saying is that we have eternal life. Remember what we read in verse 13. 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. It's the same thing. But it helps us to realize that this is not just life which is unending, as we say in the vernacular, wamuya, ya, 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 ya. But it is the very life of God that he has given to us so that it is his divine life that now dwells within us. Once upon a time, the whole world was from God in terms of the fact that he created the universe. So in that sense, we are from God, the whole of the human race, indeed the whole universe is from God. God is our creator. But if you've read your Bible, you know that soon after that beginning, there was a tragic fall. A tragic fall. A moral downturn at the dawn of history. And consequently, we died. Spiritually dead. We lost genuine connectivity with God. Yes, later on, there was actual physical death. Adam died. Eve died. Their children died. And we've all been dying. But this initial aspect of death had to do with the fact that we became separated from the life of God. And you can't miss it because on the day it happened, when God came in the cool of the evening to meet Adam and Eve, they ran away. They wanted nothing to do with this God. Something tragic had happened in them. That's exactly the world we came in. That's how we lived earlier in our lives. Before grace caught up with us. We also wanted to have nothing to do with God. We were as it were being forced to be among the people of God. To pray to God. To read this book was a boring activity. We loved sin. We hated righteousness. We'll come to deal a little bit more with that when we come to the enslavement of the evil one. But the point is this. While still in that state, God reached out to us in recreation. So at first, he made us. Now he remakes us. Once we were given life, now we are given new life. We are born all over again. We are born spiritually. We are born from above, as the Bible would put it. And so, it is this new creation that is being spoken about here when John says, we are from God. Just the way in which at the beginning of human history, the human race, Adam and Eve, came out of the hand of God, created by him. We 
are also, if we are true believers, recreated by him. It's not just a decision I made that now I will stop living like this and I'll start living like that. No, friends. There's something infinitely more glorious than that. God came down and gave life, new life, spiritual life to dead me. And hence, I became born again. It is said that that phrase, born again, has lost its meaning. Today, when a person is asked, are you born again? What he thinks is, did you walk to the front? Did you repeat a sinner's prayer? Did you do this? Did you do this? It's got nothing to do with that. When you are born, people are not asking you what you did. They ask you what your mother did. She gave birth to you. It's what your mother did. That then give you life. But why have we emptied the meaning of that word when it comes to conversion? After all, all the Bible does is to use words in the physical world in order to enable us to conceptualize spiritual reality. That's what it does. So, just as you were born, your mother gave birth to you, and probably the only thing you did was to cry, remember? Now let's face it, we can't remember. But that's all we did. We cried. What we call the cry of life. It's the same way with becoming a Christian. The most you do is cry. Because new life has been infused into you by God himself. What is that cry? It is the cry of repentance. That's the cry. God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I deserve to perish in hell. Jesus, thank you for taking my place. Dying in my place. Suffering my punishment. But it's a consequence of the fact that God has done something. He has given you birth. He has, to borrow a more technical term, regenerated you. Yours is then to cry. Bottom line is this. You are from God. Just as physically you are from your parents. You are from God if you are a Christian. And friends, that surely should, should fill us with, with a sense of, of joy, a sense of privilege that God has decided to be my father. The creator of the universe. I'm not worthy of it. But that's the act he has done. 
He's, he's made me his child. I am from him. What a privilege. As you walk in this world full of different people, different lifestyles, different religions, different this, different that, different the other, to be able to realize that the creator of this entire universe has remade me and I'm now his. I am his child. John says there, we know. We know how privileged we are. We know, we are conscious of this. But also ought to fill us with a sense of, of security, a sense of safety, a sense of hope. Because he who has brought us into this world is the one who will look after us. That's why I said this verse is closely connected to the previous one. Look at how he begins verse 18. He says there, we know that everyone who has been born of God, there it is, been regenerated by God, been born from above, received new life from God, does not keep on sinning. And here is the phrase, but he who was born of God protects him. Protects him. Now that makes sense, isn't it? I mean, think of the very small children in this auditorium right now. Think of the way in which their parents have that jealous eye on them. Many years ago, when I was like one of them, my parents used to go to St. Paul's along Bama Road. Sunday morning after the service, while I suppose they were greeting friends, I, I went with a friend of mine, equally small, we were playing in the trenches in Kamwala. We crossed Bama, went into Chilimbulu. We were playing there. Finally, it began to rain. So obviously, I realized uh, I better go home. And I've never forgotten upon getting home, finding an anxious mother. She had even reported me as a missing child at the police station. That's a bit of my many sins in the past which Jesus forgave when he made me a new creature in Christ. But I remember the, the, the emotions of anger on the one hand. Where were you? And the emotion of relief. You've been found. And of course I was all drenched and so on. She got me changed. But the mother's heart, the mother's heart, is a, a heart of anxious love and care over that child. That's good to us. That's good to us. He hasn't sort of left us and, and gone off on some journey and doesn't know what's happening to us. He, he, he's alive to all the details of our lives. He, he protects us. In every way, in the midst 
of our trials, in the midst of our temptations, he is there fanning into flame something of divine affections in our hearts that we may live for him to our dying day. And therefore, we can have hope. We can have assurance that I will get to heaven. Why? My father looks after me. He who gave me life, I am his child. He will take care of me. May I ask whether those two emotions are very real in your breast? First of all, the sense of privilege. Wow, how privileged I am. And then the sense of hope. That in the midst of all the trials of life, my father is taking me home. We know we are from God. We are out of God. Therefore, he is doing his part. But there is the second part of this. And it is that... In a, as we enjoy this assurance of salvation, we are at the same time feeling sorry for the miserable state of the rest of the world. We are touched by the fact that our kith and kin, our brothers and sisters, our parents, our children, our, our workmates, our friends at school are outside that privilege. And stubbornly so. Look at the way John puts it here. Verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world. Some of them are religious. They go to, to church. They go to mosques. They go to temples. Some of them are completely irreligious. They'll even tell you with a sense of superiority that I'm an atheist. That we just came from a bang in history. That's how we find ourselves here. And they call it knowledge. They are there. John is saying that we know that they are in the grip of Satan. In the grip of Satan. And that's what he had been talking about earlier when he was referring in verse 18 to, to this being who's also attempting to, to, to bring us into his grip. Look at the second part of verse 18. It says, that, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The evil one is still trying his best to, to lay his paws on you, to, to bring you into his domain and so on. He's busy doing it. But he can't. Why? Because we are from God. Whereas the rest of the world is in his clutches. 
But if you noticed in our text that he is not saying that we are from God and the whole world is from the evil one. Have you noticed that it's not a direct parallel? Because as I said at the beginning, the, the whole of creation initially was from God. It was out of God. God created the entire human race, the entire universe. It is from God. The evil one has simply usurped that position. That's all he has done. He's coming in a clever way, in a deceitful way. He is part of a, a rebellion. In fact, largely his own plot to bring about a rebellion against God. And consequently, from the fall of Adam and Eve, which was his own making, as we read from Genesis chapter 3, he entered into the serpent, and the serpent deceived Eve. The consequence of the fall was, first of all, a change in our very natures. In other words, as human beings, we became sinful. But secondly, it was now a change with respect to the world itself. The world became a platform on which rebellion against God is taking place in red-hot conspiracy. It's not just a sin in me. It is a communal effort to bring about the removal of the government of God over human life and living. But remember, behind all that is Satan. Satan, or the devil, as we sometimes call him. Before the Lord Jesus Christ went to heaven, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And three times over, he referred to the devil as the God or the ruler of this world. Just turn with me very quickly there because we're still with John. John chapter 12, John chapter 14, and John chapter 16. John chapter 12, beginning with verse 31 there. John 12 and verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. In other words, through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan is about to suffer his heaviest blow. The ruler of this world. Chapter 14. Chapter 14. And verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. There it is, for the ruler of this world is coming. All Jesus is doing there is pointing to his coming death. And he's using the language of Genesis chapter 3. 
that the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. He's coming. He has now come. This is his moment. It's the moment of darkness. What he doesn't know is that in that hand-to-hand combat, the son of God, or the seed of the woman, will also crush his head. He doesn't know that. But that's God's agenda. So, Jesus is saying, look, he has no claim on me. Whatever it is that's about to happen is not because of any real intrinsic power or authority in him to try and vanquish me. I am going in and allowing what's going to happen because I love the Father. I'm obeying the Father. It is his command, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Notice his enmity, his effort to destroy the kingdom of God. And lastly, chapter 16, chapter 16 and verse 11. Talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, I begin from verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. And there it is. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He's condemned. He's brought, as it were, to the point of loss of victory to the point of actual defeat. So victory is on the side of God. Brethren, as much as popular education may want to make you think that there are no spiritual forces in this world, wake up. Wake up. The evil one is real. To borrow the words of scripture, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. And souls after souls in their millions are in his clutches. And that explains why they refuse to believe the truth, staring them in the face. Every so often, I, I get some information about the human body, especially when a person has gone to the hospital and the doctors have told him about some imbalances that are now happening in his body and so on. I come away thinking, now, if, if our body is so intricately woven together and that the very reason why we are what we are right now is because of that balance that God has put in there, the, the precise balance. Okay, let's remove God now, but the precise balance that is there. How can anybody think it's a bang that produced that balance? How? And call it education. Eh? 
But you see, the reason why people are willing to, to short-circuit their brains is because of the evil one. He's a master deceiver. And so it's convinced them that, you see, all that happened is, is that uh, there were millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years. And, and so there's been sort of growing sophistication over years until here we are. Hopefully in the next 10 years, we'll be flying without aeroplanes. Well, sorry, not 10 years, 10 million years, we'll be flying without aeroplanes. It's a lie. And the reason why they are willing to go that way is because they are in the clutches, the grip of the evil one who makes them to believe a lie. Or think of an individual who's been brought up in the Christian world, the Christian faith, brought up by Christian parents, and now says, I, I, I no longer believe all that. I remember at one time when an airplane I was preparing my sermon, the guy sitting next to me goes, uh, I can see you're a Christian. And I said, yes, actually, I'm a preacher. He says, oh, yeah. I said, what about you? He says, that, me, I'm an atheist. Oh? Tell me about it, I said. What makes you an atheist? He says, well, you know, this thing in the Bible about you know, not having different types of clothing in the same cloth, you know, all that. I'm an atheist. You throw away the entire Bible because of a verse in Leviticus? Clearly, in the clutches of the evil one. In the clutches of the evil one. Some little thing you don't understand that someone else has told you. You haven't even gone into the scriptures to see it for yourself. Throw away the entire proof that is even staring you in the face. That even the best aeroplane in the world is nothing compared to those little birds that fly around and get onto those trees. It's nothing. Despite all the computers we've put in, nothing. Those little birds, when it's winter, they cross over from Europe into Africa. And know exactly where to go, to go and keep warm. While we are trying to use air conditioning, what, what, nothing. When winter is over, no computers, neither Microsoft, nor Mac, Apple. Back where they came from, thousands and thousands of kilometers away. And you say, God has nothing to do with it. Nothing. The readiness to believe that is because the evil one has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And consequently, they are unable to see the truth staring them back in the face. And consequently, a person is willing to say, ah, Forget the religion of my parents. So lies. It explains why individuals are willing to go into a life of evil 
and sin and wickedness and immorality. They know it's wrong. God's given them a conscience. Every human being has a conscience. But they want to blackmail that conscience, to silence it by claiming that God isn't there. And therefore, let's do as we please. I'm sure most of you have heard of a nation somewhere in Europe that's voted for the abortion of children. How, how can a majority of people say it's right, let's kill these babies in the womb, let's get rid of them. And remember, the ones who are voting are alive. Okay? They were not aborted themselves. But no, no. Kick God out. And now we can do as we please. And we can fill mortuaries with unborn babies. They are in the clutches of the evil one. In the clutches of the evil one. And friends, the point I'm making here is this. We should feel sorry for them. We should be moved with 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 mercy that individuals have, have short-circuited their brains and, and short-circuited their consciences because the evil one is, is driving them like a hard taskmaster to the grave and deeper than the grave into the flames of hell and we are surrounded by them in the millions. It ought to move us to pity. It ought to cause us to want to, to do something about it. We ought to be willing to, to spend and be spent in order to rescue the perishing, to care for the dying, to snatch them in pity from sin and the grave, to be the means by which God would bring them into new spiritual life. We ought to do that. To throw in our all, our time, our money, our everything. Friends, I, I find it difficult, I must admit, I find it difficult to, 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 to mingle with Christians who, who, who are willing to, to go into the night in order to, to watch some, some football match. I think you know what happened yesterday. But, but they are unwilling to be inconvenienced with respect to the salvation of souls. It means we, we are losing sight of this reality. That we ourselves are privileged, but we are surrounded by thousands and thousands of people who don't know their left from their right, spiritually speaking. It, we want it to be totally at our convenience. And I'm saying, no, brethren. Let's realize, first of all, that we are immensely privileged. And at the same time, we are surrounded by perishing masses. Whether they've got money, whether they seem to have all the world's goods, they are perishing masses, enslaved by the evil one. And we ought to break our backs to bring the only message to them, the only message through which they can get saved the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must constantly be putting it before them. One of our ministries is marriage enrichment ministry. 
It's, it's meant to reach out, for couples to reach out to fellow couples. And every so often I hear this excuse that, ah, but we, our marriages are also not perfect. We're also having problems in our marriages. So how can we be reaching out to... Now hang on, hang on, friends. Our problems are nothing. Ours are to do with sanctification. Eh? We are saved. Except we're not perfect yet. The people we're trying to reach out to, it's not sanctification. They are dead. Dead. Completely dead. We can't be saying, let's wait until my husband is like Angel Gabriel and perhaps my wife like Angel, I don't know which female Angel. And then that's when we reach out to the lost. No! This process will not arrive at its end now. It's a journey we must continue until we get to glory. But for our friends, the unbelievers, as God said to Jonah in the midst of his own childish sulking, the people that are there, they don't know their left from their right. Come on, Jonah, wake up. You are a privileged individual. Now get up there and do your work of evangelism. That's the way it must be with us, brethren. Those stories about they got married and they lived happily ever after are meant to take children to bed. <laughs> eh? And you are supposed to be grown up now. Don't believe them. You slept on them. Now wake up. There's a world perishing out there. And we better make sure we don't allow them sleep because Jesus is being presented before them again and again and again. Well, let me wrap up with a positive message because this is meant to be positive. A Christian must always be conscious of how privileged we are. We are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Oh, how we ought to be a people that in the midst of the trials of life, the temptations of life, should be full of singing as we're hearing earlier on hallelujah hallelujah jesus has paid the price hallelujah for us i am a new creation i'm no more in condemnation never never ever and therefore my heart is full to overflowing i want to sing day and night of the goodness of God. I know I've got a life that is God-given. A life that the creator of the universe has reached out to me and given to me. Oh, to rejoice in that. To rejoice in that. Even as I do my evangelistic work, I'm saying to everybody, I was once a beggar. I've now been turned into a prince by the king of kings and lord of lords come, that you too may enjoy something of this wonderful, glorious, immense, and infinite love 
That's what our evangelism is about. It's come that you also may experience this, a life which is from God. Amen.